the idea of freedom is that there's you, the kind of freedom that abandonment gets you is the, the freedom to do things that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do because you would be too fearful about the pain and suffering they would cause you. But I think it, in that way, it's quite simple. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Trombley and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. In this conversation, I speak with Zena Hitz. I loved her two recent books, Lost in Thoughts, and then most recently, A Philosopher Looks at the Religious Life. It's that latter one that we will be focusing on in this conversation, in addition to teaching philosophy at St. John's. Zena is also the founder of The Catherine Project, a free and volunteer-led great books organization. They have some excellent tutorials and reading groups, so do check out their website, catherineproject.org, if you're interested in thinking about some of the great works of philosophy and literature with others. Here is our conversation. Thanks for joining again. Oh, thanks so much for having me back, Caleb. Well, let's start with this broad question that I can't recall if I asked you last time, but what's your story? How do you, how do you answer that question? I am philosophy teacher, philosopher, teacher of philosophy, teacher of liberal arts. And I began my life as a, a liberal arts student, became a research academic, left everything to join a religious community and came back and sort of re reshaped my vocation into something more, more oriented towards teaching and service rather than research. And that's my story. I, I tell it mostly in Lost in Thought, the first book, but it also, the experience in the religious community is behind this new book. Yeah, I think a useful way for people to understand what kind of religious life is on offer is through this trait of wholeheartedness also one that is shared by many of the ancient Greek philosophical schools and other philosophical schools as well, of course. But I wonder if you could speak to that a little. Well, so maybe the first thing to clarify is that the religious life, that's the topic of the book, is not just the life of any old religious person, but a person who lives a certain kind of committed life. So monks, nuns, hermits, these are kind of the central figures although I also try to treat these as being instances of Christian life more generally and having ways that I think there's a way in which every, every Christian lives a life like this. I do focus on Christian religious life, even though, as we all know, their religious life is, exists in many cultures. It's just the one I know the best. First say that, and then what, what I, I distinguish wholeheartedness as being the key, the key goal of making a commitment of commitments, for instance, of poverty, chastity, which is celibacy in this case, obedience to a superior, along with sometimes there's a vow of stability, not to, not to change places, a renunciation of, of wealth, as well as a renunciation of work. And my thought is that these are all aiming at wholeheartedness. That is not Heartedness might sound like it means p 
purity of motive, that is that all you care about is God or all you care about is loving your neighbor. But I want to be quite clear. I think it's been confusing to some of my readers. It's not having no other motivations. It's just that what you're committed to at the bottom, what organizes your life, the thing, the standard by which you judge everything else that you're doing is that ultimate commitment to love of God and love of neighbor. It's contrasted with what's called lukewarmness, which appears in the book of Revelation in the, the New Testament, where someone who's neither hot nor cold, usually des described in that section as being a person who's wealthy and thinks they're self-sufficient, that mm -hmm. person is not worthy to enter the kingdom of God. So one has to be all in. One other example from the New Testament the, in the in the Gospels, there's a famous story, right, a parable about a person who finds a pearl of great price and sells everything they have to get it. So it's the idea of selling everything you have for one thing. Doesn't mean you don't ever want anything else or you don't ever feel anything else, but it means that your commitment is to that one thing. You you will you're you're committed to trading anything that you have to in order to keep that thing. Yeah. So how would you distinguish wholeheartedness from the kind of person who you might be in the fictional example the person who comes to mind is howard rourke from the fountainhead who's just obsessive about architecture and of course you know i'm in silicon valley so you have many different models of people who might take that in the corporate structure would you define that as a kind of wholeheartedness where i think there's a sort of single pointedness either towards some personal goal of enrichment or some idea of, you know, art or building a company or something like this. Is that how you, is, is that a kind of wholeheartedness or is that a distinct? I think that's a wonderful question. I'm very grateful for it. So I think something like this, it's an attempt at wholeheartedness. So it's, it, it, it bears some similarities. So you have a total commitment to space travel, total commitment to architecture, total commitment to getting as rich as possible. People don't always admit that that's their motive, but it is obviously the motive of many people where they wouldn't actually achieve it. Or, you know, there can also be moral commitments, political motivations, which you just want to give everything you have to ending climate change or, or what have you. I think that what happens, I think, is that part of the part of the background thinking in Christianity is that we can't actually want anything wholeheartedly. We're put together in such a way that we desire, above all, a transcendent good that is God. So we might try to organize our life about one thing, and we might succeed to an extent, but it's never going to be completely peaceful or comfortable because there's something in us that wants something different. And this is, we find this in pop culture all the time, you know, the sense of it being lonely at the top or a, a sense of an emptiness, even though you have everything you're looking for, even though everything is within your grasp, there's a sense of emptiness, a sense of meaninglessness. It's very, it's a very common trope theme image. And I think that Christianity has a version of that that is None, we can try to be wholeheartedness. We can try to be wholehearted about things that aren't really going to make us flourish, 
but it's something about it's not really going to work. It's not going to end well. And we're going to have inner conflicts that, that can't, be, can't be resolved. So in the beginning of the book, I suppose you ch- talk about the challenge of life's meaning and more or less argue that a life without God is meaningless or pointless and perhaps tragic as well. So one question I have here is, I think there's, of course, something to that argument, but on one hand, meaning seems very cheap. You know, if I just think about reasons for action or good things in the world, they come to mind immediately, unless one's in an especially dour mood, I think. So uh, I suppose, but there isn't like the last something there is maybe one way to think about that. The thrust of that argument is that we have a desire to commit ourselves to something fully, something that is eternal in this wholehearted way, but is not met by what the Stoics would call so many preferred indifference or the things in this world that might be good, but are temporary and perhaps not in some ultimate sense meaningful. I I think that's right. And I think it's not honestly as clear in this book as I would like it to read. We think about meaning in really more than one way, just as you said. So we can we can think of, you know, a, a walk in the park is meaningful because it's obviously good. It's good for everyone, not just people who believe in God. It's, you know, nature is beautiful and using one's body in a healthy way is good. And that's available to anyone. So I'm not saying that somehow only religious people have good things. I think that would not be true. But there is, it's, it's the sense in which, in the, and I think in my first book, I was clearer about it. You know, what's, what's the final end of your life? What's the thing towards which that you're ultimately committed to? And I think not every philosopher thinks there has to be such a thing. I'm pretty convinced that there has to be, not only one that we we can choose, but also one that's implicit. You know, whenever we have a dramatic choice, whenever we're in a crisis, we're usually in a crisis about what our ultimate end is. You know, con- a conflict between career and family, say, or a conflict between morality and respectability, or any of these things. Y- you have to look at your ultimate commitments, and I think that it boils it boils down ultimately. There has to be one for which you trade every everything, and so. That's the the candidate for the source of meaning. And so it's connected to the thing about wholeheartedness in that the the, the meaningful life is the, the wholehearted life. And again, it's just a claim that Christianity makes. It, it follows on some, some other classical thinkers, more like Plato and Aristotle than the Stoics maybe, but where we're just put together in such a way that only one such thing will satisfy us. And that's a, that's a claim that I think many people today would reject. You know, most of us think that, most of us secular liberal people think that there's more than one thing that could satisfy a human being. Claim, this more radical claim of, I think many of the world's religions and, and some philosophies is that no, there's, there's, really, there's really only a na- much narrower set of things that can really satisfy it and make our mm-hmm. lives, like, so that we can look at our lives and say, this whole thing was worth doing. Never get to that. You, you know, you, can, you could walk in the park every day 
for the rest of your life and it might still be great. I, I have this in mind because I was just walking the Camino de Santiago in Spain where, you know, it is kind of like uh. that every day. <laughs> and in a way, you think you could do this forever. And in another way, well, what's it all for? You would have to have an answer to that question. Otherwise, it would just be one day walking after another, one pretty bird, another pretty flower after another. And you might really wonder whether that life was was something that was worthy of of all that you put into it. <laughs> yeah, so I suppose both Christianity, other religions, and the Greek philosophies, many of the Greek philosophies at any rate, hold that there is this one thing you can aim towards, different conceptions of virtue or happiness. Do you think it's useful to mm -hmm. contrast the Greek answer with the Christian answer as something like many of the Greeks, maybe holding aside things like Epicureanism, are aiming to strive for divinity, whereas as a Christian, you're embracing a kind of, I think, dependence as is the word you use. Right. So this is something else I've gotten in a little bit of trouble with with my readers. In the book, I do make the contrast between your your ultimate good, your, your eudaimonia, your flourishing as something which you achieve um, and something which is given to you and which to which in a way the main practice is a type of surrender rather than a, a some kind of achievement. I think that the fact is that that's, I think that's true. I think what I said was true, but it is a bit of a simplification because there's a way in which, you know, even in case of the Greek philosophy so that you know that for someone like Aristotle the best life is the most pleasant now you don't aim at pleasure it just ends up being the most pleasant so it's in a way there's there it also matters the way that you aim at something or how you aim at something <laughs> and it could also be for someone like Aristotle a matter of chance whether you actually actualize uh, that potential and and so in that way it may be something that happens to you. So, and in a matter of your environment, your education, things that are not under your control. Right. So, so I think it's a little bit misleading. And I, and I also think that ultimately, and this I think is borne out by the, the, the later Christian tradition that, that tries to reconcile Greek philosophy with Christianity, Augustine, and then finally Aquinas, that Christian happiness is meant to be a type of eudaimonia. That it's, it's sometimes held out as, in some of these authors, as... Christianity is how you achieve the thing that these people always wanted, which is to be divine. And it turns out, in the Christian point of view, it's not under your control. It's given by grace. And that's, a, I think, distinctive from the ancient views. But the end, in some sense, is the same. And, and there's some yeah. way in which Christians succeed where others have failed, but the, the, where the objective is quite close. Yeah, right. Yeah, I was thinking about this in terms of the Stoic case, where on one hand, you have the Stoic idea is almost the best expression of this idea is striving to be divinity. And they'll say, unlike Aristotle, none of this is up to chance. It's all up to the individual. Every individual has a chance of happiness, so long as they are virtuous. It doesn't matter their education, their background or what have you. 
Right. But on the other hand, you also have these ideas of determinism, fate, the thing that allows you to be happy is the fact that you are a rational being, but that reason is not, in a sense, not your own. It's merely a fragment of a much larger whole. And I think, you know, if you keep on looking at that picture, you do get these ideas of dependence, even if you started with this very sort of individualistic picture. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And of course, it's historically true that Stoicism is, is, is a major, is, is in the air when Christianity is born. Mm. Um, and it's hard not to read someone like Epictetus and, and hear the, the, the Christian descendants. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's something like what you're saying, you know, it's, and it, it, there's a parallel too, if I think about, you know, you can correct me, you know, you know more about stoicism than me, so you can correct me, but it, if I think of the, the stoic point of view as being something like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what happens to you. It matters what you're doing when that happens, it's how you respond to what happens. I think that's also fundamentally a Christian thought. And it's, it's behind the, it's, it's a version of the thing I call abandonment in the book, where it's, it's not somehow, and this is, I think, in contrast, both of them contrasting with Aristotle, that it's, it's not that, like, if the right stuff happens to you, you win, but mm-hmm. you, you can receive anything that happens to you and be happy from it. Assuming that you you yourself are in the right condition, I think I think that's a very close parallel. Yeah, I think that's right. There's a idea of you want to harmonize yourself with the universe, right. and even explicitly right. not want what you want, but align your will with this larger, larger thing. Exactly. Which, which yeah, yeah it's, it's an idea I think many certainly many modern Stoics don't talk about abandonment, but I. think your book maybe th- thought maybe that's something that should be emphasized a bit more. Of course, yeah, there is yep. a large debate about in modern Stoics whether there is something to be abandoned to. You know, what is this idea of right, right, right? God's underlying but, structure, right, right. And I, I guess that this might be a difference between the ancient and the modern Stoics. I think it's usually a divine reason in the the ancient Stoics, but maybe we don't today so much believe. It's harder for us to believe in the divine reason. Yeah, there's, I think, lots of debates and questions in the modern yeah. community about that. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. That, that particular question. So one issue that I think always comes up with these, this project of fully devoting oneself to something is, how is that justified when doing so seems to violate some role ethics? And I think you go through a number of stories of figures who seem exceptionally virtuous, but nonetheless leave relationships that I think many would think of as like you know, central marriage or children or communities to enter a new kind of community. So big question, of course, but you know, like how, how do you make sense of these and this conflict between ordinary common sense role ethics and moving to a new community, devoting yourself wholeheartedly to something distinct? So I think it depends a bit on how you end up 
cashing out your your role ethics. So I don't think Christ, Christianity holds to a pretty sharp distinction between pursuits that are worldly, and that's narrow, that's a narrow sense of worldly where it means something like the pursuit of power, wealth, or status, and the pursuit of God. So there's no normative hold of the pursuit of wealth. You can use wealth, status, and power for good. It's not that they're somehow forbidden, but they have no normative pull. So, So renouncing them costs you nothing. The hard cases, I think, and there's a particularly hard case in the book, which is one of my it's one of my favorite stories. I discovered it just a couple of years ago. Wolada Petros, who's a saint of the Ethiopian Coptic Church, and who was a figure of resistance against the Roman Catholic missionaries in Ethiopia in the 17th century. So this is just a fascinating person, and her and her life. One of the things that's so it, it just undermines all of your your thoughts about, you know, what Christianity is, you know, what, what an African is, what any of these things, you know, what, a, what a 17th century woman might have been capable of or not capable of. So it's very interesting for all those reasons, but she leaves her husband to become a nun. And that is something which violates, say, if in the world I know, which is the Roman Catholic world of today, if you went to your bishop or your your pastor and you said I or or to a religious community and you said I think I have a call, you know I've I'm married, um, with or without children, they would say no you you can't be called you're you're married, and so that yeah. there's a way that in the contemporary version, the marriage commitment is its own vocation, which exists because of the call to celibacy in direct conflict with with the religious life. So to me, it's, it's just interesting to, to think that that's not a universal rule in, in the Christian churches. It hasn't always been true, yeah. and it's not true at, you know, outside of the Roman tradition necessarily. So, if, you know, Orthodox priests can be married. That's another contrast. And there's a famous saint. This is a bit funny. I don't mean to make fun of my own religion, but there's a saint. I think he's Swiss. I can't remember his name, but he... He had 12 children, married with 12 children, and he, he felt a calling to be a hermit. It's very funny because it's hard to imagine if you had 12 children in your home that you might feel a calling to be a hermit. Anyway, he, he lived out his vocation. He lived outside. His, his family would bring him food. He lived out behind his house. Anyway, so there are variations in the past which suggest something different. And I, I don't quite know how to how to think about that i i think it it can't be so i suppose i don't i don't hold that there should be a direct moral conflict so you can't be called by god to do mm-hmm. something morally evil so if abandoning your wife and children is morally evil you can't be called by god to do it but i i think there might be especially if we think about the way the institution of marriage has changed over the years over the centuries and in, in how it changes across cultures, I, it, it seems to me possible that in certain contexts, in certain ways of imagining it, you might be called out of, out of one commitment into another. So yeah, that's, that's, I don't know if that's helpful or if you want to come back at a, with a more narrow question, but something like that. Yeah, well, maybe another way to ask it is if you see someone doing something as 
extreme as leaving their marriage, there's certainly going to be, at least I think, there are valid reasons for leaving marriage, and also there are invalid ones. And there's always a question, I think, maybe for people who find themselves in a kind of position like this, am I more likely to be in the situation where I am rationalizing some right. mistake? Right. Or right. am I truly called, whether that takes on religious shape or not? And, and perhaps this is just an exceptionally difficult question, but I would, ex you know, do you ha how do you think about distinguishing which of the two cases you might be in? Well, it's maybe focusing on marriage is not the most interesting because <laughs> in the Roman Catholic Church where I come from, there's a, there's a whole canon, canon law structure which determines when it's, when it's valid to leave your marriage and when it isn't and when you can, you know, it has to be, when it can be annulled and when it can't be. And so there's a whole set of laws that I think most listeners are, they're not, they, if they accept them, they, they might make sense or they might not accept them and they don't make sense and it doesn't get down to, to fundamentals. I thought your question might be getting to it's something beyond marriage, like something like your. So I can think of two people. They're not vowed religious, but they lived something like that. Dorothy Day and Catherine Doherty. They both had young children at the time when they received a call to live a kind of radical life of poverty. And it's quite uncomfortable to read about their lives at that stage because it's obvious that their children are suffering from mm -hmm. the life that they've chosen. It's also obvious that that their lives are extremely fruitful and beautiful and fascinating and noble, and it's 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 challenging to see what the what the issue is. Or something that I think many many people who who are called religious life faces, you know, care of aging parents. You know, what do you do if if you're the you're the person who's going to care for your aging parent? I mean, you're called to this life. So, I, and I I think this is there's a Christian spiritual practice called discernment, where you're meant to really work through on an individual basis the subtleties of your situation and to really try to see what the right thing to do is. And that might be subtle because there might be cases where because you believe that the world is governed by a providential God, you, 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 you have to see the limits of your own choices and abandon the things that are outside your control to, 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 to providence. So sometimes it falls into that category, but sometimes you might really have an obligation. So it's, it's, it, it all ends up being quite complicated. I think very difficult. I think it's honestly one of the things that, re, that real life religious have always struggled with most intensely is, is the sense of obligations to, you know, or, or suppose, yeah, suppose your community is under a grave threat. Do you, you know, should you leave the cloister to defend it or to... So there's, I, I think it's, it's not a, yeah, it's, there's not an easy answer to that kind of question. It's, it's discerned by individuals and you can make mistakes. I mean, it's not one way or the other. And I think it's, 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 it's but it, it, it is, I think it, it is at the heart of what, what happens to many people who are discerning a call like this, either at the beginning or later on. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I didn't mean to fix on marriage yeah. too much. And it's certainly right that there are different kinds of places this will crop up, whether you're maybe someone 
feels the urge to be something close to a moral saint, leave their community and either work abroad or start donating on amounts of money that the people surrounding them think is bizarre. And I think that many of us can bring to mind individuals of people who act this way and are clearly virtuous, even if there are trade-offs or harms that result in their actions. But it's also true that there are ideas like, you know, the person who loves all of humanity does more for their own sake than, than for the sake of all of humanity, right? A way to justify ignoring neighbors and this sort of thing. Right. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. It is. And it is exceptionally difficult to think about these sorts of cases. Um, Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But in some ways it seems like it's the sort of thing that many people are not always faced today. Does that seem right to you? Maybe it's like we have these kinds of hard decisions people make and perhaps how many, how often do these crop up in a life? Um, What do you think? I don't know how, I think major conflicts between things that really matter and that we care about are very, very common. (laughs) But conflict between ones, if we go back to the way we were talking earlier, so we're thinking about our eudaimony, our own flourishing as human beings. Confl- conflicts between the deepest source of our flourishing and the source of meaning in that big picture sense in our lives and other things, I think those are less commonly experienced because I think people are less likely to make those kinds of commitments. So it's but when they do, I think they experience them. <laughs> but maybe this gets more to the heart of the question you were originally asking about this, that, that one of the advantages of dealing with a crisis like this in, from within the Christian worldview is that you know it's supposed to work out. <laughs> because there's a divine mind that has ordered all things towards good, even though that's sometimes impossible to see. If you are genuinely called by God to this particular life and there's an apparent conflict, you you have to assume that you've misunderstood something. So so there's there's always this and and in fact, even if you make a mistake, that mistake too is ordered by providence. So there's a way in which the struggle is real and probably essential to this kind of life and, and the struggle to understand and discern what the right thing to do is. But on the other hand, it's all under the rubric of this omnipotent divine providence. So you, ultimately, you can, you can be at peace because it's, you, you know that, that even your mistakes are integrated into, into some, some further good. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I suppose that, that if you ha- have that kind of view where providence is allowed into your worldview that certainly will shape how you handle these decisions that show up on your or questions that need decisions that show up on your doorstep as it were one story that you tell from a classroom that stuck out to me and i'm curious the significance of it is to you is when you talk about teaching jonathan glover's piece on the value of lives and in alabama and students not being able to grasp 
onto the a question and i think eventually one you know you're you you say something to the effect of you know we're trying to figure out what's the value of your life to you and a student replies with you know why would you ever think the value of your life was for you what was the what's the significance of that story yeah it's one of my one of my one of the it was maybe my first year of teaching so i you know i remembered it i was very shocked by it at the time and it was also a, mem- a moment of culture shock. I've always been a coastal person. So I was in Alabama and I, I didn't think that that exchange would have happened in another part of the country. You know, we were talking about whether your life is worth living with certain kinds of challenges or disabilities. So, you know, is your life worth living if you're totally unconscious? If you're, it, This is the Glover article. Is your life right. worth living if you're conscious but in constant pain? Is your life worth living if, you know, w- what have you. And, you know, he ends up concluding that your life is worth living when more or less it's worth living. That is when it's a good life. And so if, you know, I think these students had had experiences either in volunteering or in their own families with, of living with people with quite severe disabilities. And I think their experience was these people were valuable for them. So it's, you know, that it's, you see something of your humanity in a person who's in pain, a person who's suffering, a person who has limited consciousness or limited capacities. You see something of yourself and you see what's sort of what's possible for a human being, even at the limits. And that's very nourishing for that person. So that's the, that's the background. So the, I think it's, in Christianity of the stamps that I follow, it ends up being a bit, there's a bit of a, a par- at least apparent tension because in a way, y- your devotion to God or your devotion to your neighbor is eudaimonistic, it's for you. But there's another way in which it's, it's total self-sacrifice. So, and that is, I think, meant to be something like the in the image of Christ crucified, which I think I also talk about in that same section where, you know, you, you here's this person who has not, you know, in some sense is in a, a perfect state of suffering, but has also perfectly renounced every worldly good. So they, they, they are, in, and I think you can see this also from a, a stoic perspective, you know, they are, they are indifferent to pain, they are indifferent to humiliation. They are indifferent to death. They they are serene in their choice and their surrender to the the way things are going. And you know this is a happy person. This is a happy person. So I think that it's it's a the example from the from the Alabama classroom is is meant to be a bit of a a challenge to people like me and my, the communities I've always lived with, secular coastal communities, where uh, non-religious communities, where, you know, you don't, you, you tend to think of it as being more zero-sum. That is, you tend to think that there might be a type of disability that a family member could have that it, it, it couldn't possibly be worth it for you or for them. And I think that Christian point of view is that the, those zero-sum conflicts are not real. 
I think the, yeah. the kids in the classroom were putting it in the opposite direction, right? So they were saying like, oh no, what you, what you want doesn't matter is what the other person needs. But right. in fact, that's, that's in a way just a kind of halfway point to the main picture, which is just that there's not a conflict. It's a life of self-sacrifice is a life of happiness. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's the point. Yeah, I, th I think so. I think you see, you see this, the same t tension in stoicism, or at least this tension around being virtuous. It is doing so exemplifies your greatest good, but of course also what might be required of you uh, by being virtuous could be acts of great sacrifice, great courage, or what have you. And then I think you also see this, at least initial tension where if you think about the focus of your decision-making, should it be what is pursuing your own good or pursuing the good of the much larger whole, these communities you find yourself in. And both Stoics and Christians think that ultimately those are going to be one and the right. same, but in our actual decision-making, they're difficult, difficult to tease apart. And yeah. I think I, I love that story because... I think so many of us have just been so programmed to think about decisions about career, decisions about what's next in my life from the standpoint of my good, that to right. bump into people who think differently right. is a useful way to check oh, yeah. one's assumptions. No, and I mean, this is also just part of my experience, which you asked about at the beginning, right? So I, you know, I, <laughs> sometimes when I talk about it, it sounds like a very boring undramatic thing to have done, but okay, I left, I leave research academia for teaching academia. But it is a case where it looks like you're giving up something which is good for you, that is free time, status, work that redounds to your own reputation, and then it's an exercise of your capacities for something which is self-sacrificing, that is, you know, teaching, service, helping other people think. It just turns out that it's just in my experience, just, uh, just 10,000 times more gratifying. Like, you know, my day-to-day -day life is just way better when I'm involved in this academia as service than this academia as achievement. And, you know, you can cash that out in the details how you like, you can analyze it how you like, but I think it's a, it's a fact that many people, many, many people experience, religious or not, that yeah. the, your, your happiness tends to come through connections. Through, uh, with others and, and helping others. You know, we think of helping as being, giving something up, but in, in fact, we actually really like it most of the time. <laughs> and so I think it is, yeah, an attempt to undermine that mindset that I think is very familiar to people like us. Yeah, you, should, you don't want to give up too much now or, or you won't be happy. It's like, no, actually, you might be happy if you gave up a lot more than you are mm -hmm. now. You might even be the happiest if you give everything up. You know, who knows? Yeah, I think we have feel like our th freedom or autonomy is threatened by these right. images of a life and worry that people in these other communities are not free or they're not acting on desires that are, in fact, their own. Right. I have a dear friend... Sorry, I interrupted you, but I have no. a dear friend who, who who died of cancer last year. He he left, graduated from college, and then he enlisted in the army. This was in the nineties, and it looked, I think, to him and to others as this 
sacrifice, service. You know, I'm going to give up everything I could have been and I'm going to give myself over to this life of obedience, risk, danger, boredom, et cetera, and, and regimentation. Um, and he, he, this person was not at all the kind of, you would never have pegged him for a military guy. I mean, he, he loved poetry and the good life and, you know, you just wouldn't have thought it. Anyway, I remember getting a letter from him after, you know, a few months or a year. And he said, you know, it's weird. I really like this. <laughs> like this, I just, I really, I'm really enjoying being in the army. It's great. Uh, so I think it is a, not unusual to buy something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's also the idea that I think you can, if you want your ideas to have other people to interact with your ideas, your thoughts, of course, there's the academic path, there's the prestigious path, but and in the medium term, I think that works out for many people, at least having some form of influence. But yeah. I think if there's a much perhaps longer path to continuing to interact with people freed as much as you can of these other corruptions of prestige, of different intellectual fashions. And if you, many people who do that, I think long enough, do find readers, of course, people to interact with their yeah. work. And, you know, people recognize even if you're doing the smaller thing, playing in the smaller pond, if you're doing it in the way that, you know, they, they like without all these other distractions, there's something, something, something to that. And often I think these people find influence later on. Not always, of course. And there's <laughs> examples of people who purely take the prestige route who do very right. well for themselves. Um, right. But I, I don't think we should overlook the, right. the that's that right. other, uh, other facts. That's right. Excellent. Well, one, coming back to, I think, an earlier line about abandonment. Mm -hmm. uh, how does one find freedom, if at all? Is, is that something you would look for? Or if not look for, think about it's an important question to answer. How does one find freedom in the state of abandonment? Well, I think part of it is thinking about freedom as in a very, you know, I there's a lot of philosophical fussing about senses of freedom. And, and sometimes I, I resist it, even though I've learned a lot from those, those conversations. So if I just think about my choices being restricted, it's just, you know, okay. So you're not free when you're, you're more free, the less your choices are restricted. If you think about pain and suffering, they are usually perceived pain and suffering. Prospect of pain and suffering is a major, major limitation on kinds of choices that we have so and that's through our own way of choosing right so you know and and that that happens even though i you know as i explained in the book i don't i think you are free when you're capable of choosing things which cause you pain and suffering even so my daily life like everyone else's is conditioned by choices which are trying to avoid being <laughs> so it's the idea of freedom is that there's you, the kind of freedom that abandonment gets you is the, the freedom to do things that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do because you would be too fearful about the pain and suffering they would cause you. But I think it, in that way, it's quite simple. Abandonment is difficult 
the, the Christian ideal of abandonment, that is accepting everything that happens to you as, as, as coming from a loving will, that's difficult because of the astonishing amount of suffering that takes place in the world. That's what makes it hard. If it weren't for that, if, if, if life were all cupcakes, it would be easier to abandon ourselves. It was like cupcakes versus donuts. You could abandon yourself like, well, whatever happens, cupcakes or donuts would be fine. But if it's, you know, it, when you're faced with the kinds of things that are out there in the world, the, the various horrors and torments that are out there, then I think abandonment becomes very hard. So the freedom is, you know, I don't, I don't need to, to let this restrict what I do. So again, Christ on the Christ, Christ crucifixion is a kind of paradigm example, right? He, he, he can choose this suffering and death without regard for the fact that it's suffering and death because of something that it, something that it means on the on the cosmic scale. On a, on a much less mystical sense, you think about someone like Socrates, right? He's he can choose. He could he can run away from Athens. He cannot run away from Athens. He can. Give a good speech to the jury that persuades them, or he can give the terrible speech he gives, which which makes them even angrier. Um, he has these choices because he doesn't he doesn't care. It's it's a matter of indifference to him whether he whether he dies or not. So I think that that's the basic nugget of it. That, and I think it, in, there's a way in which is very intuitive. If 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 you know. If, People who live their lives in a kind of pathological avoidance of pain and suffering live very, very limited lives. And I think anyone can see that. You know, they, they might not leave their houses. They might not ever take a risk. And they're not, they're not living in the fullest sense. Right. How do you think about the idea of Nietzsche's version of this idea where you practice Amor Fati, the great person loves fate? They take the decisions that they would will if they were ever in that situation again. You have this idea of eternal recurrence and then embrace everything else that is outside of that. You know, I, I, I love Nietzsche. I've never vibed, as the kids say, with this particular aspect of his thinking. And I don't know whether it's because I don't understand it well enough or whether, which is probably the case, or whether it just doesn't attract me for whatever reason. So I, I don't know whether I'm compelled by that. But again, it may be, maybe if you, if you can explain it in terms that will put its teeth into my thinking, maybe I could be pulled over. But you know, it seems, I suppose it seems similar to this idea of these earlier ideas of abandonment with this added dimension of there's some of Nietzsche's idea of you know, like a great person, right. someone who right. you have these ideas of overcoming pain. Right. So I, uh, maybe, maybe it's something like this. It's helpful. Nietzsche and I gather Schopenhauer, who's a thinker who I also don't know well enough, but who I always want to, who I always, I'm always interested in, always want to read. They think of human happiness as being essentially competitive. You you prevail or you don't. And that, that goes along with a, a rejection of the Christian critique of strength and power. So if, if you believe 
that the world that the world is that that human flourishing is essentially competitive, then you don't that closes off this Christian option of, oh no, I win by giving everything. Yeah, like I win when the bad guy kills me. Most of all, that's martyrdom. That's the highest achievement of a Christian life. Whereas to someone like Nietzsche, that's an obvious absurdity. It's like, no, no, when the when the bad guy kills you, you've lost. <laughs> You're the loser. So it's I think that 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 Nietzsche's presenting a kind of challenge to Christian thinking that I, I think is I think is based on a uh an just an inability to accept a very understandable inability to accept that the world is providentially ordered and that there's a loving God who, hmm. who runs all things. So I think once you reject that, then it, the argument for, for achievement through weakness or achievement through suffering, achievement through abandonment becomes less, less, less credible, maybe totally incredible. Maybe that'd be a struggle. Right. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Excellent. Well, is there anything else you would like to add? Only what I always like to add, which is that if you if you want to read really good books like Nietzsche and the Stoics and um, talk to people about them, then look for the catherineproject.org and sign up for one of our groups or volunteer. We're always looking for volunteer leaders. And I feel like Stoa podcast listeners would be good candidates either for the courses or for leadership. It's all volunteer and it's all free of cost. Catherineproject.org. Excellent. Perfect. I'll be sure to put that in the intro as well. Thank you. Well, thanks again for taking the time to come on. Thanks for a great conversation, Kayla. It's great. Great talking to you. Thanks for listening to Stoa Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. Send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.